Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Brent and I want to welcome Mike Wood to the Cato podcast, and we've asked Mike to give us a little uh, history about himself. He knows more about police work than... Uh, a lot of police officers I know, including myself, and that's because he is a student of history. And as we know, history is a repository of all lessons. That's a Daryl Evans quote for those of you who know Daryl. And uh, we wanted to invite Mike to give us some perspective on the cycle that our country is going through right now, and particularly with civil disturbances and uh, the redefining of the social contract between police officers and the communities we serve. But Mike, uh, I always find it interesting that you know so much about police work and that yet you were not a police officer. Could you tell me how you got into uh, studying history and particularly law enforcement history and then how you got into writing your first book? and uh, all the articles you write for Police One, et cetera. Well, you, you bet. And, and first, let me thank you for uh, getting the opportunity to speak to the Cato audience here. It's uh, fantastic being able to do that. I really appreciate it, and it's an honor for me. Um, the short answer to your question is I was born into it. Uh, my dad was a highway patrolman in California for 30 years. And so from the youngest age, uh, I was surrounded by cops and the cop life and the law enforcement uh, community. And my brother and I both grew up with intentions of going into that as a profession. Uh, We both got a little distracted with our Air Force careers. Uh, I went into the Air Force in uh, 1987 and spent a little over 26 years in uniform in the Air Force. And uh, by the time I got out, that, uh, that ship had kind of sailed for me, but I never really lost my interest in the profession. And uh, I've certainly tried my best to try to keep connections with the profession through uh, various activities that I do as a, as a law enforcement firearms instructor and so forth. Um, I've done some volunteer work with law enforcement in various capacities. And, and uh, as you mentioned, I, uh, in 2013, uh, 2012, 2013, I published a book about uh, the California Highway Patrol's Newhall shooting in 1970, which is one of the foundational elements of, of what would become the officer survival movement uh, that we all know that, that brought us so many tactical lessons for the officers today. Um, anybody that's done a, a felony vehicle stop in the last uh, 50 years uh, owes the tactics to the Newhall shooting, for example. And so I wrote a book about Newhall. It was well-received within the law enforcement community, and that kind of springboarded into a couple other opportunities for me to do some writing. I've uh, been writing over at Police One magazine for about uh, six years now. I serve on the uh, editorial board there, and it's given me the opportunity to share uh, some of the lessons that I learned in my military service and, and through some of my study of law enforcement history. And as a firearms instructor, it's been able to been able to share some of those lessons with a larger audience. And uh, that springboarded into other opportunities where I was fortunate enough to um, be invited to different law enforcement agencies and speak with them uh, to uh, various associations such as Cato, where I presented twice at, at two different annual meetings and also with the National Tactical Officers Association, where I presented twice at, uh, at two different uh, annual conferences there. 
So uh, it's been it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to uh, to spend time with with people that I respect and admire, and hopefully uh, pass some information to them uh, that will help them in their jobs. Well, thanks, Mike. That's a lot of experience there, and uh, you've even uh, volunteered, I guess would be the right word, but uh, helped us out when we had AV issues in the past, and you've always been willing to jump in and help us whenever we need anything, and uh, a lot of times that made you uh, an untapped resource, and so we we uh, kind of fall back on our uh, Brent and I's uh, Tim Anderson model, and we want to find square pegs and square holes, and uh, we believe that knowing the history will help us repeat it or prevent us from repeating it. And so that's why we wanted to talk to you a little bit today about some of the similarities and differences you see uh, in what's going on really politically in, in the law enforcement community in respect to the civil disturbances. Sure, sure. Um, you know, one of the things I like to, uh, to talk about just to kind of start this stuff off is... Um, let me let me describe a, a period of time to you, and you tell me what we're what we're talking about here. Uh, we're looking at a period of history where we just finished a uh, a series of wars overseas that were unpopular with a lot of the community. Uh, we've got a a community and a nation that's that's struggling with an opioid crisis and a, and a drug crisis in general, uh, struggling with the mental health crisis. Uh, we've got a, a society that is strongly divided along political lines. Uh, we're seeing uh, politically motivated violence overtaking our country. Uh, we've got huge and rapidly increasing spikes in crime and in violence against our police officers, assaults and murders, um, all kinds of violence being directed against our police. Uh, large problems with uh, public disturbances, civil disturbances, riots uh, throughout the nation, uh, an unpopular um, president in many circles that lacks support from a, a significant portion of our public, uh, decay in the urban cities uh, of our nation, uh, domestic terrorism on the rise, uh, uh, a public that's uh, going soft on crime in many ways, um, a counterculture influence that's growing, um, heightened racial tensions throughout the nation. Um, when I talk about things like that, um, I think most of the guys in the audience right now would, would say, well, he's, he's describing the present time, and I am, but I'm also describing this era that uh, we focused on previously of, of the late 1960s and early 1970s in America. And, and so what I think is really interesting is that there are remarkable similarities between America from the late 60s, early 70s, and the America that, that we know today and that we're living in today. And it just kind of goes to show that uh, there's really nothing new under the sun, that, that history is a bit of a cycle, and that the things that we're experiencing right now are things that other people in other times have experienced in one degree or another as well. And so we kind of go through these cycles where there's highs and there's lows. There's things that come and there's things that go. But at the end of the day, um, there's a whole lot that we have in common with the people that came before us. And so sometimes it's really helpful for us to look backwards and take a look at how they dealt with the same problems. It kind of gives us a good idea of, 
of where we can go and what we can do to deal with the same types of things. Now, as you kind of look at that cycle and, you know, go back to the 60s, the end of the Vietnam era, which seems very similar to what we're dealing with now, do you see some things that uh, law enforcement did well that we could learn from that we might not be doing now? or a version of that? Because while things are the same, there's always going to be little differences and changes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's there, there's definitely remarkable similarities between the times. There are differences uh, between the times, too, and, and, and we'll talk about that. But I think um, one of the things that, um, that comes to mind as far as, as what they did well is that they practiced good policing. And they made plenty of mistakes, and we'll talk about a lot of them. And in, and in sometimes they they made more mistakes than they had wins, uh, and that's just kind of the nature of uh, of trying to accomplish a difficult job. But um, good policing works, and it worked then, and it's going to work now. And when I talk about good policing, I'm talking about things like uh, being aggressive and not letting problems spin out of control before you try to deal with them. Uh, tackling them head on, trying to nip them in the bud early so that small things don't become big things. And so, so things like that. Um, being smart, um, you know, using, using good tactics to accomplish the mission, having a good plan of what you want to achieve so that everybody's on the same page and then it's been communicated and everybody knows which direction that we're going to go. Um, trying to build new capabilities to deal with new threats. Uh, you know, relevant to your audience, um, the era that we're talking about from the, the late 60s, early 70s is, is really the genesis of SWAT in America. You know, in, in 65, we started to see the first teams cropping up in Los Angeles. And the idea was popularized and it, it took, you know, the, the troubles of the times and the police's inability to deal with those troubles to create the SWAT capability so that they had a tool that they could use to deal with these problems. And so being able to figure out what your problems are, what your deficiencies are, and then being able to create a capability to deal with that, um, you know, those are the types of things that worked for cops back then, and those are the types of things that we're going to have to focus on right now. What do you see as, uh, I know we talked briefly about some of the mistakes uh, that were made and it really sounds like what you're talking about is the basics going back to the basics and not forgetting clearly defining your your end state your goal clearly communicating it um, it's interesting this conversation has come up uh, in a couple different places throughout the state of California this week that I've been involved in where uh, someone they're talking about problems with protest response and someone says defense is not one of the nine principles of war and uh, didn't really think about that, but that explains a lot of uh, if you just go out and stand on the line and you don't have a plan, uh, what are we what are we accomplishing besides giving people photo ops? So, yeah, did I've, you see that? Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, you know we've seen um, some some good examples and some bad examples of that recently, and. Um, I'll use Portland as an example because that's uh, that's something that we, we see a whole lot of because they're going on, what, over 100 days straight right about this point of rioting. So, you know, we've seen plenty of examples there. But 
if you take a look at, at some of the footage in, in Portland, um, you've got to wonder at times if some of the agencies there really have any kind of strategic plan. Um, at times you see uh, a, uh, a line of officers out there and it doesn't appear that they have any kind of strategic objective. It, it essentially seems that they're, they're out there on a picket line uh, serving as targets for the enemy to throw stuff at them, uh, to laze them with, uh, with eye-damaging lasers, and to throw explosives at them and things like that. And you really don't see any kind of strategy involved with it. And then other agencies that have been involved in, uh, in Portland, and in particular, you take a look at the way that some of the federal agencies conducted things, um, you know, they, they definitely had strategies. And, uh, you know, they didn't just put their officers out there to be uh, ducks in a shooting gallery. Um, they would deploy their officers strategically. They'd have forces in reserve. Uh, when problems crept up, you'd see strike teams that would uh, flood out of a building and handle a problem, take care of it, and then they'd disappear again instead of standing out there to, uh, to be targets for the mob. And so um, there, are, there are things that we need to do at the senior levels of police leadership and civic leadership where we need to kind of agree on what our goals are, what our objectives are, before we start throwing officers out into the street. Because otherwise, what you get is just this disorganized thing where we're just going to throw cops out there. They're going to take some bottles and rocks and things like that. And then they're going to shoot some less lethals back to the crowd. And we're going to have this, this ebb and flow and this tug of war that's going to go back and forth. But without really achieving anything at the end of the night, other than counting our casualties on both sides. And so we need to have a better plan of what we're going to do and how we're going to deal with this and what we want to achieve through our deployment of our most valuable resources, our people. And so those are, those are things that are tough. And, and they're, they were tough in the 60s and the 70s for officers and agencies and civic leaders to deal with. And they're, they're difficult today as well. I think that in some ways, one of the differences between the era of the 60s and 70s is that the system was much more, uh, if you will, pro-law and order then. There was a default that uh, civic leaders would not tolerate um, the destruction of their communities and that they wanted law and order enforced. And that was more of a default type of um, preference as compared to what we see in a lot of cities today where we have civic leaders that almost seem to be encouraging this kind of destruction and violence. And then when offenders are being caught, you've got uh, uh, district attorneys and so forth that are unwilling to prosecute these people. And so if you have a community that has leadership that is encouraging violence and is failing to hold the people responsible for that violence accountable, then it's a very, very difficult position for the police to be in. There's very little that they can do if they are arresting offenders and those offenders are being uh, summarily released uh, without charges by, by the law enforcement authorities that are responsible for, for prosecuting them. And uh, so a lot of these high-level conversations need to take place between police leadership and civic leadership to figure out what we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish. And a lot of that is beyond... Um, the influence of the of the police officer on the street, um, and and that's a frustrating place for that officer to be in. Uh, but to the best extent, the officers have a 
uh, responsibility uh, to themselves and their fellow officers to try to up-channel uh, as much as they can information through their leadership chain that, that helps them make those, those good decisions. And when those bad decisions come down from up top, um, it's up to the frontline leaders to try to mitigate the damage of those bad decisions the best that they can. And sometimes we can do that with the way that we choose to deploy our forces, the way that we choose to equip them, uh, the hazards that we're willing to subject them to. Um, so even though sometimes we get really crappy decisions from our leaders, um, as frontline leaders, as tactical leaders in the street, there's always a responsibility to your troops to try to protect their welfare and try to get the mission done uh, in, the, in the best way possible. And so there are things that we can still try to do to, to mitigate the effects of bad decisions from the top. Hey, Mike, uh, one of the things you talked about was um, clarifying the strategies. And I think um, to use some additional uh, phrases, maybe identifying what the, the commander's intent is or identifying our end state, then being able to work backwards from there. There's certain uh, strategic principles that we talk about uh, a lot in the in the tactical world that I think relates well to here. In your studies of where things have been historically, and you referenced Portland, um, I'm not sure if you're looking at a lot of the things that are happening right now, but have you been able to see what kind of strategies um, are out there that are, are seem to be working well? Are there cities where um, they've seen um, some of this unrest and then the intent has been clarified and, and you've seen corresponding success? Well, I think, um, I think we've seen some isolated examples here and there. And, and I think where we've seen the best success are those cities where the police are working um, hand in hand with the community to come up with a, uh, a response. And I'll give you an example on, um, June the 1st uh, of this year, uh, we had kind of a spasm of violence in cities throughout um, the country, including uh, ones right where I live. And what we saw in some of these communities were we saw the people, uh, the citizenry, in some of these places were mobilized, and they were ready to defend their communities in concert with uh, the police that were working in these cities. And when we had cities like Coeur d'Alene or we had cities like uh, Scottsdale and other cities uh, throughout the nation where the police were working with the community and they were proactive in setting up defenses against outsiders that were going to come in and, and create damage and cause violence in their, uh, in their cities, we saw, we saw much better responses. Um, we, we didn't see as much damage. We saw people... Uh, that showed up and tried to create a disturbance, but they, they saw an organized force that was there uh, working together to oppose them, and they went and looked for easier pickings. And we don't see that type of cooperation in, in places like Portland, and we don't see that type of cooperation in, in places like Seattle, for example. Um, and I think where we see that tighter bond between the police and the community and they work things together as a team, I think we see a much more success in our ability to handle these types of civil disturbances and, and mitigate their impact. Uh, kind of switching gears or following up uh, on something you said a minute ago, when we talk about the, the cycle in history, where do you see 
the similarities right now. I know in the past you've mentioned that we kind of streamed through 67 and we're towards the tail end of 68 right now. And so kind of looking at where you see now we're in a little bit of a lull. Uh, I think most of us in law enforcement are anticipating uh, this not to be over and that we'll have a, a, a few more uh, upticks in uh, violent protest. Uh, where do you see us now compared to the past? And uh, what is that? What do you think that looks like? Yeah, it's a good question. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, I talked about in the past as far as comparing the timeline is, is that I did feel that we're kind of approaching that era of 1968. And, and the reason I say that is that in, uh, in 68, you had um, kind of an acceleration of this smoldering fire. You know, we had we had riots, uh, significant riots like Watts in '65, and we started seeing uh, riots in Detroit, in Newark, and elsewhere in about '67 or so. But in '68, we started seeing uh, a rapid acceleration of the political violence in our country. Um, you had Dr. King was assassinated in April of that year. In uh, June of that year, um, you had uh, uh, Robert Kennedy uh, was uh, was assassinated. Um, and so we saw this kind of acceleration of political violence. And, and the King assassination was particularly damaging because prior to 68, you had these violent riots that would crop up in uh, localized areas throughout the nation. But in 68, now all of a sudden, the riots went nationwide. And you saw them spring up simultaneously in all the urban cities throughout America at the same time. You know, in 68, you had what they called uh, the Holy Week riots, where you had about 150 major urban centers throughout the United States that all saw rioting at the same time. And I think that we're kind of on the verge of that right now. Um, we're seeing riots in, in spots like Portland and Seattle and Los Angeles and Atlanta and, and major urban areas. But I think what we're in danger of is, uh, particularly with uh, the November election coming near, um, I think we're in danger of seeing things enter the next phase where we go from localized rioting to coordinated, simultaneous, nationwide rioting. And I think that that's easily a possibility um, if the left doesn't get what they want in the upcoming November election, that we can see these shock troops that they already have in the street right now that are getting their practice in all these various places we can see them being dispersed throughout the nation to try to create simultaneous attacks throughout the United States. And I think that that's something that we need to be aware of. Um, for a lot of cities, a lot of counties, a lot of agencies, um, a significant part of their civil disturbance plan calls for a reliance upon mutual aid from surrounding agencies. Um, you know, if, uh, if something kicks off in, uh, in Portland, for example, then the idea is that we're going to be able to bring in folks from the Clackamas County Sheriff and from other agencies, and they're going to help us uh, take care of our riot. Well, if those, if those areas are dealing with their own riots, then there may not be people available to help you with your mutual aid program. 
And if you're not handling your end of the riot efficiently, then those agencies may not want to help you handle your riot, as we're seeing in, in the Portland area right now. And so I think what's important is for agencies to start taking a hard look at their preparations and say, what are we capable of doing ourselves? And what resources are truly going to be available to us? And in many cases, the resources that we think are going to be there, they're not going to be there. So we need to start looking at things like early call-ups of the National Guard. Uh, you know, in the past, we would reserve the National Guard as kind of the, uh, the very last straw. You know, if things are so bad and they get so out of hand that the police can't handle it, then we're going to call in the National Guard. But I think what we need to start looking at right now is we need to start kind of lubricating those uh, mechanisms that we use to call up the guard. We need to start reaching out to them and communicating with them and making sure that uh, our processes are in good order so that when the guard is needed that we can get them quickly and efficiently. Because our history from the 60s is that many of these major urban riots like Watts, uh, Detroit, Newark, those never came under control until we had a significant presence of National Guard troops on the ground, and in some cases, the active duty army, um, after the, the president invoked the Insurrection Act. Um, so I think looking ahead, we need to be prepared to, uh, to start calling in the Guard earlier rather than later, because I think we're going to need those resources very soon to, uh, to stamp out the type of violence that, that we can reasonably predict is, is coming our way based on, on past experiences. Those are great points. And anybody who's had to call in the National Guard, and this is not a knock on the National Guard at all, but there is a bureaucratic process that you need to follow in, in order to get that, and it's not a quick mechanism. They're very proficient and efficient at deploying themselves, but you still have to follow all the procedures to get them there. So yeah, that's a great point. We've even seen that with agencies, right? You know, um, going back to going back to the area of the 70s and everything, um, uh, we had the Isla Vista riots out in the, uh, the Santa Barbara area adjacent to uh, the University of California in Santa Barbara. And when the sheriff there realized that he needed help from the outside, um, his, his mutual aid call out uh, was not a practice system, and there was several days' worth of delay where the sheriff thought that he had properly requested help, and he didn't because he, he hadn't followed the proper protocols, and so no help was coming. And when the help finally did come, um, the agencies that came from the outside that arrived to help them out realized that the locals just didn't have a game plan, and they didn't have their leadership act together, and so they weren't really prepared to use the help that they were getting from the outside. And so, uh, you know, saying that we're going to call on our, on our partners for mutual aid assistance is good, but we have to be prepared to efficiently use them. Uh, we have to have the leadership team in place to be able to manage the situation and take advantage of those assets when they come. So, you know, there's that issue of is our call-up practice uh, exercised? Do we know how to efficiently go about getting the help? And then once they come, do we know what to do with them when they get here? I think you're making some really compelling points, Mike, and, and some of them are, are, are difficult to, to unpack. I'm sitting here thinking about some of the things you talked about, about you know, a partnership with the community, which is obviously something that we want. Um, but, you know, even that's a, a little bit of a dangerous road to go down if you're uh, talking about, uh, you know, how is it that you that you gain the help from um, from the community or, or your 
talking about them acting as, as officers or prevention components, you know, and, and uh, are they acting as an extension of, of law enforcement? And we don't want to get to a, a situation where um, you have citizens that are taking um, Madison matters into their, their own hands. And, and we want to want to avoid that if all possible, but also knowing that, you know, um, an agency can't be everywhere in their city. There's just flat, not enough officers to be able to deal with every issue that can possibly arise. So um, you're hundred percent right. And looking at it, I'm sure that there's, there's something in there that makes sense. But as I, as I'm even sitting here thinking through it, it's uh, it, the idea of partnering with the community, obviously is something that we all embrace, but what exactly that looks like makes me a little uncomfortable thinking it and, and looking through our recent experience of some of the, the, um, the issues that we saw, we enjoyed a tremendous amount of community support, but then we ended up breaking up fights with, uh, you know, community groups and protest groups and um, it, it kind of exacerbated the issue a little bit as well so um definitely yeah it's there. it's tough and i and i and i won't i won't pretend to say that that's easy or that i have all the answers for that um what i will say is that we can't afford to um to ignore that resource um if you take a community like, uh, let's say, uh, one from the news in the last week or so, let's look at Kenosha, Wisconsin, and what they're dealing with there. Um, the, uh, uh, the armed populace is going to be there uh, in a city like Kenosha. Uh, whether or not the police want them there, whether or not the, uh, uh, it, it makes uh, it easy for the police to have those people there, those armed people are going to be there. Right. And so um, now we have the question of, all right, so what's the most efficient way for us to deal with that? Knowing that it's a given that we're going to have armed citizens that are going to look to try to protect their businesses and try to connect, protect their communities, what's the most efficient way for us to try to help manage that process and have some positive influence on it? Um, we certainly can't deputize them and put badges on them and, and have them acting under color of authority, but we can also perhaps uh, provide uh, some guidance and some instruction so that they don't get themselves into situations that create more trouble, sure. you know. And uh, so perhaps discussing rules of engagement, what their rights are under the law, but also what their responsibilities are under the law so that they don't go and try to assume more responsibility than, they, uh, than they're rightful, uh, rightfully able to. Uh, we have to kind of work with them and, and help manage that process instead of ignoring it uh, because it's going to be there one way or another. And so uh, having a positive influence on it is, is something that will help us in our preparations rather than trying to react to things when they go south. No, it's, a, it's a really good point, and, and I don't know uh, the ins and outs of everything that's going on in, uh, in Wisconsin, and so I don't want to wade too deeply into it because all I know is what I've seen from the news um, and surface level understanding um, of things, but you know, obviously there's a, there's an incident that occurred with uh, you know somebody who, who shows up in a shooting um, armed. Just like you said, it's going to happen. People are going to be there. They're going to exercise um, a component of these rights, and 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 a shooting happens. And I can only imagine that it exacerbated an already fragile situation for that police department. Um, in you know wherever whatever happened to wherever you fall and however you see that you look at that and go that's 
that's an extra problem. And yeah, and that's a big turd to try to manage. Yeah, so you're 100% right to start to think through it now. How would we manage that? What kind of a message is going to be out there? How are we going to relay that information to talk about the rights and talk about maintaining um, peace, but also you know having a, a, a deterrent level presence for people to be able to protect their their lives and their their property while also not taking the law into their own hands and exacerbating an already fragile situation. So um, I, I right. agree that's that's a lot to grapple with. It is. And, and the time to do it is now. Right. Um, the time is not while we're in the middle of trying to deal with this riot and people coming from out of town that are creating these disturbances and destroying our city. The time to think about it is now uh, before those things happen. Uh, to try to build those relationships with the community and and uh, you know uh, provide the training that's necessary so that uh, so that the situation doesn't become worse when the balloon goes up. Going back to uh, the lessons from history, Mike, as you we kind of talked about how we got here and how similar that is to the the '60s and kind of the tactics and and kind of given uh, some perspective on that. But what was what are some of the outcomes? that you anticipate uh, looking back at history as far as when we're done this particular part. So when the, when the protests are over uh, looking back into the, into the late sixties, early seventies you know, we saw several byproducts of that that were actually positive for law enforcement. Right. Right. And and what do you, what do you see those similarities maybe when we're done with this cycle uh, currently? Well, I think, I think there's no argument that policing is going to look a little bit different on the backside of this, um, the same way that it did um, in in the post 1970s era, um, and and part of this is regional, of course, but um, you know, in in many places in America, following all the civil disorder and the uh, the urban rioting and the assaults on police and everything from the 1970s, what you saw in some uh, places of America were, were uh, police agencies that were trying to reinvent themselves in the eyes of the public. And in a lot of places, that took the form of a police agency that, that wanted to soften its appearance and, and soften its approach. Uh, police cars were painted uh, all white or in pastel colors because black and white was too authoritarian. Um, uniforms looked different. Um, uh, weapons were uh, were taken away from officers uh, in an effort to try to make them look less militaristic. You know, long guns disappeared from a lot of agencies that had them. Uh, if you look at the if you look at the the photography from the particularly the riots and for for instance Watts and Detroit and Newark and so forth. You see a lot of cops running around with M1 carbines and uh, with uh, with rifles and with shotguns and all that, and those things all kind of disappeared uh, after this era, and they went into the hands of SWAT teams. But your patrol cops didn't have rifles anymore, and they couldn't reach in the trunk and pull out that M1 carbine. And so what it left us with was uh, a law enforcement culture that in many ways was unprepared to deal with some of the threats that they would see in the 80s from, uh, from heavily armed uh, drug cartels and operations. And in the 90s with, uh, with uh, bank robbers like at North Hollywood. Um, and all of a sudden we needed patrol rifles again in the era of, uh, of post 9-11 terrorism. And so... 
unfortunately, we see these these reactions to uh, to our environment and to what we're going through. And sometimes those reactions are good, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they lead to positive growth, like with the uh, growth and professionalism of SWAT as a tool that police officers can use to deal with these abnormal situations. And then other times we have these reactions that don't make any sense, where we try to uh, become officer friendly and we try to soften our forces and now we are left unprepared to deal with the very real threats that come down the road. And so I think that one of the things that's very important on the backside of all this when we get through it is that we don't become too reactive and that we, we take progress in a measured uh, way so that we're not making radical changes where we're trying to uh, reinvent ourselves overnight uh, and, and change the nature of policing. Um, you know, something that you mentioned earlier and that we've heard before is, is um, kind of renegotiating the contract between the police and society. And, and that's something that's uh, being discussed a lot right now in light of what's happening. And what I would suggest is that we really don't need to renegotiate that contract in many ways. Um, I think that society as a whole wants a police force that's capable of protecting them, protecting their property, protecting their family. And we do have some very, very vocal and aggressive um, minorities in our population. And I don't mean that in terms of racial terms, but I mean that in terms of size. Uh, we've got some minorities that have the microphone right now. And with the help of the media, they're getting a lot more attention than they probably deserve. But honestly, if you go into your communities, um, you know, 90% of your community doesn't want its police department to disengage, to walk away, to de-police, to suffer from the Ferguson effect. They want their police to be there doing the job, holding people accountable, and, uh, and keeping their communities safe. And so if, if we allow ourselves to give the, the, uh, uh, the attention that this small minority of people is getting, if we allow ourselves uh, to, to put too much emphasis on that and to try to recreate ourselves and the vision that they would like for us, um, I think that we'd find that, that that would not be something that the majority of our populations and our communities would, would like. And, and so we have to be cautious not to try to be too reflexive to the needs of this, this small vocal minority. Um, we need to understand that there's, there is that true silent majority out there that needs policing to stay just the way it is right now. Uh, there are certainly things that we can improve. There are always things that we can improve with the way that we work with the community, the way that we communicate with them. Uh, but uh, honestly, People don't want the police to be defunded and to go away in America right now. They want more of it, and they want better training for their police, not less training for their police. And so we have to be very, very careful, I think, not to, uh, to be too rash in the decisions that we make in the backside of this. Well, you make a great point because anybody who's attended their uh like county supervisor meeting or from, you know, I work in a city, so our city council meeting, it's the, it's the same group of people uh, often that uh, take their mic, take the microphone and complain about stuff and things have to get bad enough that the, 
average person who's working, taking their kids to sports. Remember when we had sports and all the other things that you do in life gets motivated enough to make sure that their voice is heard, whether it's through voting or uh, local local politicians or city councils or county supervisors. And I think that's where we refer to those people as the silent majority. And that's good. There's good hope for us in that because we've seen that in history repeat itself. I would argue since we founded our country, there's always been this uh, attack on our constitution or our way of life and it, and it balances itself out. And that's the, the great thing about living in America. You know, Mike, I, uh, I agree with a lot of what you're saying too, man. And it's, uh, it's really good to hear. And we do appreciate hearing um, um, from people about that, that silent majority. Um, and we at Cato agree that um, by and large, our officers do a good job. And we do agree that officers need more training and not less. We've been trying to work with the legislature with some of the bills that have been coming out regarding chemical munitions and the use of chemical munitions, specifically AB 66, and asking um, to have a seat at the table to help identify what best practices are so that we can put, you know, clear uh, rules and best practices out there for our officers to be able to use and to be able to provide more training because we think that when we provide officers with um, clear direction and corresponding training and then give them the equipment to use it, that more times than not, we're going to see uh, things that the, the public is okay with. Um, now, there are certain things that we can always do uh, to improve, and we're open to that, and we're open to, um, to having that transparency, and we're open for the accountability, um, and, and those aren't, these aren't things that are, that are mutually exclusive uh, for us. I, I do believe that we can do a better job in communicating um, some of the things that we're doing with uh, with our communities, but um, I think that uh, a lot of that is, quite frankly, often often overlooked, and uh, that's been only exacerbated um, in the last several months during uh, during some of these these protests. And, and I hope that that's something we can we can improve in here uh, within law enforcement. And we're very hopeful that Caleb that uh, Cato can play a role for that here in California. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I come from a 26-year military background, and uh, the parallels between the way that military does things and the way that the law enforcement community does things are, are very striking sometimes. And, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say that uh, we make a lot of mistakes in the military as well. And um, these organizations are not perfect. Um, What's frustrating for, for professionals in any organization and in any profession is when you see a pattern of the same mistakes being made over and over again. And, and that's, that's one of the other vicious cycles that we see in something like law enforcement where the problems that your, your trainers are dealing with right now are very similar to the same problems that trainers were dealing with two or three generations before. Our dads and our granddads were dealing with the same issues that we are now. And for whatever reason, we just haven't been able to lick them. Uh, you mentioned, you know, less lethals earlier. A wonderful example for you comes from the, uh, the East L.A. riots in, uh, in 1970. And in, in the East L.A. riots, uh, there was a particular incident that occurred in uh, Laguna Park in Los Angeles 
there was a, uh, a riot that was occurring. And in the course of this riot, uh, the, the police were notified that there were armed individuals inside a bar that was on the edge of Laguna Park. And a deputy was dispatched there. They, uh, they asked for the, uh, the, the patrons inside the bar to come out. There were several that refused to come out. And so the officer decided, or the deputy rather, decided that he was going to fire a, a less lethal munition into the bar to empty out the crowd. And unfortunately, this deputy was not well trained with the less lethal equipment that he had. And so he selected the wrong type of round to, uh, to fire into the bar. He, he fired a, a penetrating munition, a flight right, that was designed to, uh, to penetrate structures and deliver gas inside of a structure. And what he meant to deploy was, uh, was a short-range munition, uh, a wobbler that was, you know, safe to be deployed um, within a short distance of people. And uh, so he thought he was going to deploy a, a safe munition into this bar. Unfortunately, he selected the wrong one. He fired a penetrating munition in there. It went through the, uh, the, the open door of the bar. Uh, ricocheted off of the ceiling and the walls and the floor and when it was all said and done the munition hit the leading Hispanic reporter for the Los Angeles Metro market uh, in the head and it killed him. Uh, that, that individual was Ruben Salazar and Laguna Park is now known as Salazar Park in tribute to, uh, to Ruben Salazar for those of you that might be Los Angeles area natives. But here we had a situation where we had a bad situation of a riot and it became worse because we had somebody who was was improperly trained and in a moment of stress made a bad decision and deployed the wrong munition and so now the riot was really really turned up the gas was really poured on the fire when the story got out that the police quote unquote were executing uh, you know, Hispanic television reporters. And if we were to take that story and kind of overlay it today, um, we would probably see all kinds of parallels to what's happening right now where officers that kind of had check-the-box training, uh, that, that didn't have really good solid background and training and less lethals are now out there deploying these things. And so now we're getting these stories about people that are being hit by foam batons and they're getting injured and they probably shouldn't have been. And, you know, it all goes back to, are we sufficiently training our officers? Do we have a good training program for them so that in a moment of stress that they can properly use these munitions? And we're dealing with and we're wrestling with some of these same problems today, 50 some odd years later. And as a trainer, as an organization like Cato, that's incredibly frustrating because You've got a group of people at Cato that are so dedicated to trying to advance the art, to trying to make sure that state-of-the-art training is delivered to all these officers and all these agencies. And it's very, very frustrating when you realize that despite all those efforts, we're still fighting some of these same demons here. So um, it's those types of errors that, that really help to make a case in a, in a, in a, in a kind of a twisted way. Uh, against defunding the police because, you know, we really truly do need to invest more in the training of our officers. If we want a better result, the only way that we're going to get it is by investing more in, in training. And so defunding our officers is, is certainly not the way to go. Yeah, I agree, man. That's a big portion of what we've thought on the defunding conversation that 
I think in policing in general that law enforcement has begun accepting a lot of uh, calls for service and that things that they don't know where else to go. And they're, they're things that law enforcement probably shouldn't be handling, yet we've assumed responsibility for. Um, and that's put us in a type of situations where uh, some of these instances and some of these uses of force and things are are occurring that, uh, that, that we probably shouldn't be responding to. So if a portion of the defunding conversation uh, occurs and it, it comes with reallocating funds, um, you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to that. Now, there's a lot of different people. Defunding the police means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Does it mean um, you have no police department? For some people, it does. To, to some people, is it defunding, taking uh, some of the money that's allocated for police, uh, police departments and then reallocating that someplace else? For some people, it does. And, and for me, if there's certain calls for service involving mental health and, and, and uh, unless it threatens public safety, that there was some funding allocated for that to have additional resources go out and handle that, I'd be okay with that. If there's funding that currently police officers are responding to calls for service regarding um, issues surrounding homelessness, if there was funding for municipalities to respond to those types of calls for service, I'd be okay with that too. Um, so in that vein of defunding the police, it's, it's, um, it's not that crazy to me. Now, if we're talking about, you know, abolishing police departments, obviously that's, I mean, that's foolish and, and there's no room for that, but the funding that, that we have in these areas needs to be increased as it relates to training. Cause like you said, these are training issues. These are not malicious. These are not, uh, nefarious, uh, uh things that are handled, what we're dealing with is our membership is comprised of, of dedicated professionals, people who are dedicated to making their community safer and, and people who, who risk their lives for that. And uh, so we, we, couldn't, we couldn't agree with you um, anymore. We're just so thankful for the time and the effort and the studying that you've um, put into uh, things that have gone on in the past, as well as what we're seeing now. And also kind of giving a, a, um, drawing those parallels and bringing in some optimism of what we're able to do to help um, see us through this difficult time. So we can't thank you enough for um, for your time and for uh, for coming to talk to us on the podcast. Well, today. it's been my pleasure, and and I I do want to leave guys with that that feeling of hope. You know, it's very it's very easy for us in a time of crisis like this to look around and say, man, it's never been this bad before, um, but it has. Um, our dads, our granddads, um, they all went through these similar things. Um, if you think that, that your agency is the first one that's, that's facing claims of racism or of police militarization or of uh, you know, any of these number of things, uh, they're not. Um, our dads, our granddads, they all went through this before. They struggled with these things. They made some good choices. They made some bad choices. Um, but on the other end of it all, they, uh, they came through. Their agency survived, and the law enforcement culture survived. And it was different on the backside. There's no doubt about it. There was some growth there. Uh, in some places, there were some, some regressions. Um, there was some damage done to the police profession, but there was also a lot of growth and a lot of positive change that came from it. And, and we're going to see that same thing happen with this cycle. Um, I can guarantee it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. And nobody wants to hear that, but uh, I think that's just reality. You know, we're all adults, and we have to face the fact that uh, we haven't seen the end of this yet. Um, there are still troubling times ahead. 
but I think that our, our folks are going to get through it. And when they do, on the other side of it, they'll be stronger for it. Um, our agencies are going to look a little different, uh, and we're going to have to deal with that new reality. Um, there may be uh, some changes in that social contract between the police and the public. Uh, all that stuff remains to be seen, but I want folks to have some hope and some faith that um, they can get through this. Uh, others have before, and um, it's going to rely on certain things, right? It's going to rely on us uh, being professional, uh, going out, um, doing a good job, know the law, know your agency policies, do the right thing, uh, use good tactics, you know, be a professional, um, keep control of your emotions uh, in, these, in these stressful, stressful conditions. It's very hard for us to do that sometimes, but maintaining control of ourselves is essential for us first before we can maintain control of the scene around us. And so be a professional. Um, think, you know, use your head, work smart, um, communicate. Uh, good Lord, the communication part of it is just so critical. Um, the public, and particularly that, that silent majority that we speak of, they really don't understand what you're dealing with as an officer. Uh, and so we have to communicate the, uh, with our public to, to help them understand. Uh, it's been actually a wonderful development in the last uh, perhaps year or so to see these critical incident debriefing videos that agencies are putting together following high-profile officer-involved shootings. I think the agencies are doing a wonderful job of communicating to the public and helping them to understand what these officers are dealing with in those stressful situations, and we need to look for other avenues to try to improve that, that communication um, so that they understand what our officers' needs are and why our officers are responding the way that they are to these situations. Um, so, you know, those are all keys to helping weather this. Um, looking out for each other is a big thing. Uh, we got to take care of our people, whether it's a supervisor or if you're just peer to peer, we got to look out for each other. You know, when guys are hurting, when they're struggling, we got to be willing to, to lend a hand, help them out, whether it's on duty or off duty. Um, you know, we will uh, survive this if we can be cohesive and work as a team to help each other out. But if we allow ourselves to bicker with each other and attack each other in the stress of the moment, then uh, then the team falls apart and, and we, we just won't do as well. So, um, and I think another part of this that's very important uh, that I'd like to kind of just leave you with is that officers need to understand that there is a large group of people out there that respect you, appreciate you, and love you for what you're doing. And they don't always rush to the microphones to say it. Um, they are, uh, in some cases, fearful to do that because of uh, backlash that they might get from these more aggressive and violent members of our society that we've been talking about. But know that uh, there is an army of people out there that appreciate you, that need you, and depend on you every day. And um, just don't forget that. Uh, it's easy to kind of feel like you're alone out there and that you have no support. And, and nothing's further from the truth. And I think you may not get a lot of direct thank yous. You may not get a lot of uh, people coming up to you directly and, and, and expressing their gratitude. 
But uh, you wait and see what happens at the polls in November. And I think you're going to see a lot of people are going to express their thanks and their appreciation for what you do and the way that they cast their vote. Because a lot of people in this country realize that we're heading down a bad path and we need to correct it. And I think we're going to see a very positive result in November. And a large part of that is going to be people expressing their support for law enforcement in general. So... I think there's a lot to be hopeful for, and uh, the, it sucks when you're in the eye of the storm, but, uh, but I think we'll weather this and we'll get through on the other side. Great points, Mike, and thank you very much. Uh, just to follow up on one thing you said as a closing, uh, today's podcast was about history and how uh, we need to learn from it, and there are no new lessons. And that's my plug for the Cato Library and all the after-action reports that are in there, and the significant tactical events that are in there. These are all things that we can learn. Uh, in my shop, uh, a couple days after our four or five days of protest, I opened up the May Day report and reread it, and there were things in that report I'd read before that we still could have done better. And so, just like Mike talked about, let's... Uh, kind of look back at our history, be encouraged that we're going to get through this. And uh, this is kind of part of what our forefathers have gone through many times. And that this has been a great conversation, Mike. And I just, again, wanted to thank you so much for taking the time. Well, it's been my honor to do it. And uh, I, I always appreciate the chance to, to help Cato and to help the greater law enforcement audience. So uh, anything I can do, please feel free to reach out. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.